Hey everyone, I'm Megan, and you are listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Welcome back, and today, as you saw in the title, this is going to be a bonus episode, so let's get started. In March of 2008, an early morning call came into 911 from an unknown caller. The man gave the operator an address with the instruction to send police out there immediately, then hung up. As police are dispatched to the address, 911 receives another call about a single car crash on Interstate 80. Once police realize that both calls are related, it leads them to a bone-chilling discovery that left an entire town in shock. This is the case of the Supple family murders. On Monday, March 24, 2008, the day after Easter Sunday, a call came in to 911 at 6.31 a.m. There was a man on the line telling police to go to a home at 629 Barrington Road in Iowa City. The man never gave his name. He just instructed police to go there and then hung up. Police arrived on the scene at the home on Barrington Road at approximately 6.45 a.m. to find the house unlocked. Upon entering the residence, police discovered the bodies of a woman and four children, who would later be identified as 42-year-old Cheryl Supple and four children. Ethan, age 10, Seth, age 8, Mira, age 5, and Eleanor, just age 3. After investigating the scene, police discovered the man of the house, Stephen Supple, was missing, along with the family's Toyota Sienna minivan. Initially, the cause of death of the five people inside were unknown, and about an hour later, an alert called a Hawk Alert went out to 45,000 University of Iowa faculty, staff, and students. The alert claimed that police were looking for a shooter. Iowa City schools were placed on lockdown at 8.15 a.m. and parents were notified about an hour later at 9.13 a.m. and the lockdown remained in effect until around 10 a.m. before being lifted. That is, once law enforcement was able to piece together the puzzle of the tragedy that had unfolded. Just five minutes after the unknown man's call came into 911, Another call came in about a single vehicle crash on Interstate 80 near mile marker 251, in which a van had crashed into a concrete barrier and had been engulfed in flames. During the two-hour school lockdown in town, police were able to confirm that the van belonged to the Supples and there was a lone occupant in the vehicle who was likely Stephen Supple. The police were able to trace the call made to 911 at 6.31 a.m., to the cell phone of Cheryl Supple, but they couldn't confirm at the time if it was actually Stephen who was on the phone. But based on the call recording analysis, it sounded as though the call was made from a moving vehicle. So at this point, investigators were left with six people deceased from the same family at two different scenes and the task of trying to piece together what happened. But it would later be revealed that investigators didn't need to do much because Stephen Supple 
did all the work for them. The day before on Easter Sunday, the family did just as they had every Sunday, gone to church. And on this day, with it being Easter Mass, they had attended along with both Stephen and Cheryl's parents, who said they didn't notice anything odd about Stephen's behavior or the rest of the family. A family friend had even stopped by the Supple house that evening around 8 p.m. to visit with Stephen and saw one of the children during his visit and again didn't notice anything that would indicate something was wrong. A timeline of events from that point would be well documented by notes and voicemails left by Stephen Supple. At 11.30 p.m., Stephen left a voicemail for his father and brother at their law firm. In the message, he stated that his family was in heaven. It was believed by this time he had already killed his wife, Cheryl, but all four children were likely still alive. Between 11.30 p.m. and 3.45 a.m., according to the letter Stephen wrote, which had been found in the kitchen, he alleged that he took all four of his kids and put them in the family van, which was parked in the garage, and attempted to kill the children and himself by carbon monoxide poisoning. When that didn't work, he took the children back into the house and one at a time began to beat them to death. The three oldest children were found in their bedrooms, and three-year-old Eleanor was found in the downstairs toy room. During the investigation of the crime scene, police seized two baseball bats, which had been suspected to be the murder weapons, corroborating Stephen's written letter. When the autopsies were later conducted, all five family members' cause of death was confirmed as blunt force trauma. At approximately 3.45 a.m., Stephen called and left a message at the office of his former employer, but the details of that message have never been released. Five minutes later, at 3.50 a.m., Stephen left a message on his home phone answering machine describing his regret for what he did. Eleven minutes later, Stephen left a second message on his home phone answering machine, and in the message this time, he said he tried to drown himself in the Iowa River at Lower City Park, but he said he just kept floating. The next call he made was two and a half hours later at 6.31 a.m. to 911. Here is the 911 transcript of the call. Dispatch. This is 911, location of your emergency. Hello. Caller. Am I talking to Iowa City? Dispatch. No, this is. Where, what is the location of your emergency? Caller. Iowa City, Iowa. Dispatch. What's the address? Caller, 629 Barrington Road. Please go there immediately. Dispatch. What's going on there? At that point, Stephen had hung up. Less than five minutes later, Stephen drove the family minivan into the concrete barrier at a high rate of speed, immediately causing the van to burst into flames, and Stephen's body had been burned beyond recognition. So why would what many described as a loving, caring, and successful father and husband murder his entire family and then kill himself? Well, in February of 2008, Stephen had been indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of embezzlement and money laundering in connection with almost $556,000 stolen from Hills Bank and Trust during his time there as vice president and controller between 2000 and 2007. 
Stephen was being charged with one count of embezzlement and six counts of money laundering. The indictment also alleged that Stephen laundered a total of $13,500 from August 23, 2007 to September 17, 2007. And at the time of Stephen's apparent suicide, he was employed at Superior Concrete Incorporated. If convicted, he would face up to 30 years in prison, a $1 million fine, and up to five years probation for just the one charge of embezzlement, not to mention also having to repay the money he allegedly took. For each of the six counts of money laundering, he would be facing up to 20 years in prison, a fine of at least $500,000, and up to three years probation. Stephen appeared in court on February 21st and pled not guilty to the charges. He was released on a $250,000 bond and his trial was set for April 21st. Stephen's attorney, Leon Spies, said he had spoken with his client the previous week before the tragedy, but felt it unprofessional to discuss those conversations. Apparently, Stephen had told bank officials he spent most of the $219,000 he took over a three-year period in cocaine purchases, although Leon Spies had said that drugs had nothing to do with Stephen's case. As far as Leon knew, Stephen had been meeting the terms of his probation, but the pretrial date of April 7th was likely looming over his head, on top of the fact he knew he was facing upwards of 50 years in prison and possibly $2 million in fines and restitution that he likely knew he could never pay back. So was the pressure of the perfect family man enough to make him snap? On Saturday, March 29, 2008, all six members of the Supple family were laid to rest at St. Joseph Cemetery in Iowa City, with the funeral taking place at St. Mary's Catholic Church, with over 1,000 people in attendance. Beyond the immediate family, it was baffling to the community, especially the Catholic community, how the family could allow Stephen to be eternally united with the family he murdered before taking his own life. But the family felt That is how they needed to be remembered in life and not the circumstances of their death. The impact the family had on the community could be observed from the diverse crowd, including friends, neighbors, and classmates of the children. A picture of each family member sat in an arrangement of white flowers on top of each of the six caskets. And large pictures of the family appeared next to the altar, one of the previous Christmas and one of a family trip they had taken to Colorado. During the funeral, Cheryl's brother, Dave Kesterson, said, quote, You were a great family. That is the legacy that you leave, not this one tragic event, end quote. Now, from here, I wanted to take a minute to talk about Mira, Eleanor, Seth, and Ethan. Five-year-old Mira was just one day away from turning six years old and was in kindergarten at Longfellow Elementary School and was described as loving to be the boss. Three-year-old Eleanor was described as being the little princess. She loved to dress up and play with her Barbie dolls, and she loved wearing her tights and tap shoes. Eight-year-old Seth was in second grade at Longfellow Elementary School. Seth had a love for animals and music and enjoyed gardening, especially vegetables and flowers. And 10-year-old Ethan was in fourth grade at Longfellow Elementary. He played the cello and also enjoyed playing golf and soccer. After the deaths of the four children, Longfellow Elementary School announced plans for a fundraiser and to have a 2D plaque placed in their gym of the four innocent children who lost their lives. But my research findings end there. 
So I hope that the plaque was able to be funded for the children and placed in the school in their honor. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. You can find the sources for this episode in the episode description. Please make sure you follow and rate the show and share with others. You can listen to Secrets in the Cornfield podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and Audible.